This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work, and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. Welcome to PreserveCast on the second ever Trades Takeover. This is Natalie Henshaw, Director of Historic Trades with Preservation Maryland, and today I am here with a very special guest, Abby Vanderslice. Abby was a member of the Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program with the National Park Service, and she's joining us today from Tennessee. Yes. Yes. So, Tennessee to be specific. All right. Well, Abby, we love to get to know about all our guests and their backgrounds, so can you tell us about yourself, where you're from, and how you got into preservation? So I ended up coming to Chattanooga for college back in 2015. Um, I originally was going into forensics is what I wanted to do in anthropology. And I ended up getting really into archaeology, which somehow led to preservation. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't really, um, I was never really into history, actually, before I got into college. I, I was very much against it until I started realizing how tangible it is and how important it is. Okay, we we'll have to back up. You're against history. <laughs> yes, I I don't know. It was one of those things where I, at the time, you know, you go through school and I was in high school and it was not my favorite subject. I was more into sciences. But um, once I took archaeology and, you know, realized how much more history was than just what they taught us in the textbooks, it became everything. I loved the tangible aspect of when you do archaeology, you get to actually see and be a part of the history and interpret it versus what everyone else is telling you it is. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. It. Um, once I took archaeology, and I didn't even know I was going to love archaeology, but once I did, it opened up that whole realm. And then getting into preservation, it was just a combination of working and enjoying history and having everything be right there in front of you. And now you're not just looking at it and appreciating it. You're also trying to preserve it for future generations to actually enjoy it as well. Right. So after college, did you ever work as a shovel bum? That's a term I learned from some other archaeologist friends. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was in the process of after school trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, I was bartending and... I was applying for jobs and there were not any archaeology positions open near me. And I was trying to kind of stay in the area. Um, I love Tennessee. I love Chattanooga. I love that city so much. I was like, maybe I could try to find someone close by. And that's how I ended up 
started looking for programs through USA Jobs. That, oh. Yeah, that's who, or that's what I was told by all my professors is look at USA Jobs and you could probably try to find archaeology through there, or other um, jobs that might be related to it. And so I just started applying for everything that involved me being outside. Um, so right. I didn't breed as much as I probably should have on some applications, <laughs> but I definitely looked for anything that had any similarity to history and working outdoors. And that's how I unknowingly stumbled upon TTAP. Right. So that's a good lead in. Um, what is TTAP? T-T-A-P. So TTAP is the Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program. It was the second year they, or the first year they did TTAP was the year that I joined. Before that, it was the Veterans Trade Apprenticeship Program. Mm -hmm. And they started opening it up to young adults who had been interested in the trades program as well. So they had one based out of Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park, which is just 30 minutes away from downtown Chattanooga. And I ended up getting a call from Kyle Rommel, who ended up hiring me with some lucky stroke (laughs) because I answered the phone and was like, what job did I apply for? So (laughs) he ended up telling me, you know, if you can show up on Monday at this time, this location, then you can have the job. And so I put in my two weeks notice at my bar and end up getting the rest of my shifts covered so I could show up on Monday. And I just, I literally walked in and did not even realize what I was walking into. I knew it was, I'm going to be working at a national park and it's dealing with some form of preservation. And you'd be working outside, right? And I would be working outside. (laughs) Okay. Well, my key. Yeah. What was the application process like? Did you apply through USA Jobs? Yeah. So USA Jobs, I can't remember exactly what, um, if it said TTAP or Traditional Trade Apprenticeship Program on the application. But I had my filters on for, you know, within so many miles of where my location was and my interests and everything like that. So I had just been looking through my, you know, special filters that I had put out on USA Jobs. And that was one of the suggested jobs for me that I applied for. And it okay. was fairly simple. You, you put up your resume, uh, you answer a questionnaire and submit it. And if you want, you can attach a transcript or any other cover letter or anything. Right. But I think I just put my resume. I don't even think I had my transcript at the time. So it was, it was a fairly easy application. And what's interesting about TTAP is you are not actually employed by the park, right? No, you're, you're almost like a contractor for the park. So you get hired on through Conservation Legacy. And so trying to explain to people can be difficult, but you (laughs) are a Conservation Legacy employee who is in the TTAP program, who is a part of AmeriCorps, and you work at a national park. So it can be a little bit complicated when trying to explain it to someone when they go, what do you do? Where do you work? But <laughs> you end up getting used to either the process of being like, oh, I just work here. Like you just. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you having to give the whole spiel. But it's so you're a conservation legacy employee, which right. is what it comes down to. That's who you end up getting the and everything from. But it's really cool to be able to work physically at the park. 
Right, right. And full disclosure for listeners, Preservation Maryland has a partnership with Conservation Legacy to help support TTAP. And we have joked that your uh, t-shirts resemble a NASCAR t-shirt with all the logos about how it makes it possible. (laughs) Um, Yes, that's just how it works. (laughs) You need a lot of partners to make these type of things happen. So (laughs) Um, I've never thought of it like that, but I definitely see the NASCAR. Right. Um, so tell us about the park you worked at. It's the Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What was that like? What type of things did you get to work on? And um, what are the historic structures there? So uh, Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park, the biggest things that we focused on there are monuments. We have well over a thousand monuments. Oh, wow. Bron- well, not just monuments alone. It's monuments. Uh, bronze components so they can be anything from a seal or placard on a monument to a whole statue of a person or multiple people Um, there are also cast iron plaques that describe locations of generals and troops on the battle and what they were doing on what day and what time and then we also have wayside markers we have um, everything spread out between two states I believe three counties and 9,000 acres. Oh my gosh. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I had no idea until I got hired when they started telling me, I was like, wait, that's a part of the park too. Like it's between our lookout mountain, signal mountain. There's a little spot called orchard mob downtown. We have the main battlefield and then just like little plots of land here and there. It's wild how much we have and how much there is to do. So when I was there, or still am there, what I primarily work on and what I started working on through TTAP was preservation of the monuments. So okay. we did a lot of washing, uh, using a hot pressure washer and this chemical called D2, which is a bioinhibitor. It would prevent algae and moss and everything from growing on these monuments mm-hmm. to help make them look like brand new. But We ended up um, also learning how to do hot and cold waxing, which is, you know, you get to use a cool torch for hot waxing and heat up everything and throw the wax on there in hopes it stays and protects it for another year. (laughs) Right. And then I started learning how to do mortar. So, you know, repointing missing pieces of monument using uh, lead joints for replacing lead joints that have gone missing over time, replacing whole bronze components so if a seal is missing from a monument trying to get that replaced back on there I mean the list is never ending but right it has been a very diverse uh, job I can say that at the least it sounds like you had to learn a lot of different material science because you know if you're working with all these different metals you can't treat them the same or even just you know making mortars and different cleaners um, did you get to learn a lot about those type of things oh yeah we so we learned not only how to take care of certain, so like with our um, bronze components, there's certain methods of how to get a patina on there. And then after the patina, you want to do the wax and certain ways to do the wax. And if you don't do them just right, you can mess it up and you have to start all over. Oh man! So it's been a lot of trial and error and paying attention, reading instructions, and really making sure that you know, you're putting in the effort and you're paying attention while doing so. This isn't like you would think, you know, oh, you're washing rocks. Well, 
you're not paying attention, you might actually chip off some of the side. And if you're not paying attention to the chemicals, you could really hurt yourself or someone else or the asset itself. Right. So it, I learned so much. I didn't even know that I would ever need to learn about preservation. I had always seen it from more of the museum side mm-hmm. and kind of the clean and tidy aspects. But in the field, it is a whole nother world of chemicals and equipment and tools that you have to learn how to use. And I mean, things that I would have never thought that I was going to be doing. Right. And you actually brought up a good point too about the learning. Um, you didn't know this before getting into the job about all these different, you know, material sciences and cleaners. How did you go about learning it once you started? What was the process like? Did you, you know, have a textbook and do it? Did you have to take a class? Um, did you work under somebody? So that was actually the beauty of TTAP was we did a little bit of everything. So you go through a course while you're in the TTAP program and it's a preservation course and it kind of gives you the fundamentals of how to begin. It's not specific to every park. It's just an overall, this is how you approach preservation. And these are the common things you would do in preservation and how to do them. So it's a very baseline kind of general education. And then from there, whatever park you're at, that's when you work under either a preservationist or a uh, maintenance worker or like a facility manager. And that's when you start to get more hands-on and Mm. learn from doing. So I got to work under our preservationist at the park who had experience working with HPTC and other parks that had uh, preservation units. So I definitely had a good ground, like got to hit the ground running and learning a lot more than most other parks did. But it, it was one of those where you're going to mess up and you're going to feel awful about it because you might really screw something up, but then you learn and you really take it to heart the next time. And you're going to slow down and try to make sure you do the best you can. Right. Right. I've talked about that with a few other um, trainers before that failure is such an important part of the process and what you need to do is set up instances for controlled failure <laughs> yes <laughs> that is like, a perfect example yeah yeah where somebody can explore the tools and the materials but they're not going to destroy a monument that can not be replaced in the process yeah <laughs> um and sometimes setting that up is easier than other times but uh, it i Failure is so important in the learning process, um, particularly, I think, when you're working with these hands-on things. Um, I don't know about you. It's hard to get used to at first that you you need to fail <laughs> to learn. Yes. I am a perfectionist, so yeah. just being watched while I'm failing was miserable at the beginning, but it kind of became a reality of this is how I'm going to learn, and this is how I have to learn, because... Mm-hmm. If if I'm not doing it in a controlled instance, like you're saying, then I'm going to be doing it out in the field and causing damage to something that may not be able to be replaced or fixed at any point. So it was definitely a a major, I guess, acceptance for me to try to understand why I need to fail. But it was the program itself was really set up so you could learn to fail in smaller instances and not cause major damage, which is amazing. Do you think that was the most challenging thing for you is learning that process of learning 
or was it something else? Yeah. I think the biggest challenge was the fact of failing and not being good right off the bat because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you don't have a textbook always to go by. A lot of this um, trade work is through trial and error. A lot of it is, well, I don't know if this will work, but let's try it and see. Mm. So that learning process kind of helps set me up. So for future preservation, I'm not scared to take a risk if I feel confident in how I'm going to do it. That's if I great. feel confident in what I'm doing and if I know that I can test it on something else that may not cause damage or I can test it in a controlled environment and be able to figure out in the future, oh, this can be either a useful you know, chemical, or this could be a useful tool, or you learn, nope, I can't ever touch that again. That's going to cause problems. Right. Man, that's a lovely summary. <laughs> that is just, that is like the type of outcome that you really want from the training is somebody to come out with that level of discernment. Cause you're right. It's, you can read it in a textbook, but it's never directly applicable to the field. It's never one for one. There's always something unexpected and you have to have that level of discretion to do the job effectively. Um, and yeah, know, know your limitations. <laughs> Coming from school and a lot of time trades, people tend to not go to college and they end up being able to go straight from high school and go to a trade school. Mm-hmm. Coming from a college background, it was a little more difficult because everything at that point had been follow the textbook and you'll get your answer. Right, right. But this is definitely... I think it was a great thing to go out of the comfort zone for me on this as well because it built my confidence and my work ethic and built my confidence and you know just in general of how to approach tasks that I may be uncomfortable with yeah would you say that's your biggest victory out of TTAP oh for sure that it definitely instilled in me a little bit more than I thought I even had so it gave me a lot of confidence in who I am and you know what I'm capable of really so how long were you in TTAP and are you still in it? Technically, I was in TTAP for two years. That is the okay. maximum time you're allowed to be in the SEB program. Okay. Um, usually TTAP, it goes for six months. And then the park, based on the park's funding and conservation legacy funding, you can get extended or your six months is up. Mm-hmm. Because I was a part of the new program where where they were doing young adults, there was a lot of funding behind it. And I was very lucky to be able to get extended and extended and extended and continuously so for two years. Um, right at that two-year mark, that's when COVID hit. So yep, that, that, was, <laughs> that was a bummer. Um, but after that, when I came, I had like a week or so left on my contract and I came back and the park was wanting me to stay on, but did not have a position for with the park to hire me. So they said, we will continue to help fund you through. You just cannot technically be TTAP. Okay. So I'm still a conservation legacy employee. Oh. And I still work through AmeriCorps. I'm just not classified under the TTAP program anymore. Okay. So it's some kind of weird, like, um, paperwork thing, but that. I was there for two years and now I'm an intern at Chickamauga and Chandu National Military Park. So I'm funded out of parks funds. Right. Okay. And what are you, what are your career goals? Do you want to stay at the park? 
I would love to stay at this park because at this point I've put so much effort and time and I really kind of built the relationship there Mm -hmm. that it would be great to stay there. But the reality of park service too, is if you want to move up and you want to get jobs, you have to be willing to move. Mm. So it's been kind of a battle of, okay, well, depending on where do you want to move, but also where can you get hired and where has jobs. Um, right. So that's kind of been a battle. And I think right now, I mean, things are going to work out how they're supposed to, but they're starting to hire more now than they did because since COVID, they haven't really had a lot of hiring. A lot more opportunity is beginning to open up now than was before. Right. And this might be a good section to talk about the opportunities that TTAB does provide, um, specifically the public land core hiring authority, (laughs) affectionately known as the PLC hiring authority. Um, Do you know much about that? Do you have that for yourself? Yes. So within my two years of TTAP, I, one of, it's a, every time you go through TTAP, you have to sign a contract here with, like I said before, you're kind of a contract. So one of the contracts I signed when they offered it to me, it was the public land court. And What that essentially did was for every paycheck, you got paid a little bit less than you would if you were a traditional tea tapper. But in return, you end up getting money towards either student loans or Mm -hmm. future schooling, which was great because it helped pay off student loans. And they told me when I was applying for it, they said, this will help put you on the same playing field as a veteran. So when you typically apply for government jobs, usually there's a scoring system. And based on how you answer your questions and how you submit your resume, you'll be scored, let's just say like from a one to 10. And if you have a veteran status, you automatically go to the 10. And so even if if you have all the qualifications as a young adult or, you know, anyone else who's in the career that may not have a veteran status, they're going to score as a nine. But this PLC is supposed to put you on that same 10 level Mm. so that way you still can get your resume to the employer and have a chance of getting hired or a better chance of getting hired than you did before right right and when we say young people we mean ages 16 to 30 which yes I think that's the cutoff was 30 (laughs) yeah Uh, I think back in the day it used to be 25 and I don't know what happened I guess they extended the (laughs) the range of what young the definition of young (laughs) And I've offended someone of what young was and they're like, okay, we'll do 30. (laughs) Yeah. I like that story. It's probably not true, but I like it. So we'll say it's real. (laughs) Um, So how has that helped you in getting a job? Are you able to use that hiring authority? Because it sounds like you did the hours that you needed for it and you went through the process. So is that helping you get a job at Chickamauga? So right now it is helping me, but it, I was a part of the, again, I was one of the first people using the program. Mm -hmm. And so it was a brand new thing. They were starting to advertise about a year in when I was uh, working with the park at, through TTAP. Okay. And once I got it, I was like, oh, great. Awesome. And it expires within two years of you getting it. So that's the, that's the one hook is that you got to get a job within that two year span. Right. And So I'd gotten it and I was, you know, hopeful that it would be able to help me get a job. But because it was so new, 
And it hadn't really been talked about, I guess, through park service, or it hadn't really been um, advertised to the park service the way, same way it was being advertised to the young adults who were taking that as an opportunity. Every time I would put that with my application, they didn't really know what it was. I actually had it several times where um, I had submitted my application and I got asked by the hiring manager, what is, by the way, what is your, that PLC paper? What does that mean? Why did you attach that? Hmm. And so <laughs> I was like, I thought this was supposed to help me. Right. And it, it is, it will help you. And it's becoming more well-known now than it has been, but it, it was a little difficult when you got something that's supposed to help you um, get a job and the people who are supposed to be hiring you don't really know what it is. Right. So it sounds so, like people in those positions need some awareness of what this is and how it can be used, right? Yes. Okay. And it's definitely grown. I do now see it being an option on applications of, do you have a public land core uh, certificate? Do you have that background? Which is amazing. I'm so glad that it's becoming more well-known. It just hasn't been. And I think some parks still don't really know what it is or how to use it. So the education of that to parks and hiring managers, I think would be really helpful for future people going to the program and getting that. Right. Because it can be hard if you're, you know, getting a little bit less money, it might be helping your student loans, but every week that might be difficult for some people if there's no promised end. Right. Right. It's the, the future gains that also make it worth it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we can do is in the show notes for this episode, we'll have some information about the Public Land Corps Hiring Authority in case anybody at NPS who is interested in this program (laughs) is listening. So we can have some information about that and some contact information with the NPS Youth Program Specialist so they can help answer these questions and partners like Conservation Legacy can also help people out and figure out how to do this. But what would you recommend for T-tappers going through? What should they keep in mind to make sure that they can use this? You mentioned paperwork, right? Yeah. So I, my biggest thing would be, you know, when you look at it, know going in that you are going to get a little bit of a pay cut. So just go ahead and prepare yourself for that. Because I know the first time you look at a paycheck, when it goes down a little bit, your heart skips a beat and you're like, oh my gosh. But in the end, it is worth it because if you do have student loans, if you do have, you know, future education that you're trying to put money aside for, like if you want to go back to school or if you want to go to school in general, it helps towards that as well. So you don't get that money until the very end of your PLC um, contract. But if you do have student loans, another great thing about it is it furloughs those student loans until you get that money. So you're not going to be gaining interest on any of that. So it kind of, if you are trying to pay them off, it does give you a little bit of leeway and some help in that aspect. Um, The paperwork is pretty much the same as what you would be signing for the uh, TTAP paperwork. It's not really much difference. All it is, is just kind of laying out what um, PLC means. And at the end, you get a certificate that you can attach with your resume and submit. So whenever you apply for jobs, you can let them know not only in your resume, I have it, but show them the certificate of, yes, I have proof that I have it. And this is reason to hire me. Okay. So they'll actually get that certificate and that shows they went through this program and it's an official document that they can use in the application process. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's one of those, it's great to have just 
even if you know it's a lower job or anything, just throwing that in there now is going to help just give a little bit of extra push of, look, I put in time and I'm willing to wait <laughs> to get right. this job. Right. So what would you like to see from the broader preservation community? There's a lot of talk now about you know, supporting people going into the trades and um, starting trades training programs and, you know, speaking from the experience of somebody who has been through one of these, um, what do you think we can help out with or do better? So I think that um, this is kind of one of those, I'm sure many people here today, like, do not think you have to go to college. Trades are a wonderful thing to get into. I think it should definitely still be continuously talked about. That, that is a wonderful opportunity to get into instead of going to a college if that is not your interest. Right. Um, I try to open that um, window of accepting more young adults and opening up the trade program because most of the time we talk about trades, we talk about welding or construction work. And it sounds like TTAP does not require a college education. You don't have to have a degree to apply to it. Oh no. It, it did help me in the sense that um, because of my archaeology background, my um, supervisor at the time, he wanted me there because since it is a Civil War park and since the Spanish-American War was also there and World War II, World War One, he kind of liked the idea of having me there in case they found anything while out in the field that maybe I could help identify. Right. <laughs> but other than that, it, it wasn't a necessary. It definitely was not something that you have to have to get into the program, which is wonderful because it's open to anybody. It's as I think the only requirement was maybe a high school education, but don't quote me on that. I can't be a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I think it's a high school diploma or a GED, but um, yeah, the application specifies what makes you eligible. And I think it'll say regardless of that. Um, Yeah. And uh, you're a woman. In construction, and women are only 10% of the construction industry. And within that 10%, only 2.5% are actually in the field doing the trades. What was your experience like? Was that like the ratio at Chickamauga or was it a little different? Um, Did you get to work with any women? So when I started, um, the only women that worked at Chickamauga were in the interp division. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very lucky to have a supervisor who was always willing to challenge me, never going to treat me any differently, and you know, gave me the same opportunities everyone else had. Um, I was the only female in what we called the compound, but like the maintenance area. I was the only female in the labor aspect of work. Right. Um, so for the first two years. Yeah, it was, I guess I would be right about, you know, maybe even less than 2% because it was just me down there. And when I ended up becoming part of just the internship, we got another round of T-tappers and I got the opportunity to work with two other females that he hired. Mm-hmm. And that was wonderful. It was great to have other females in the field and also be interested in um, the work that we were doing and it not be just a man-dominated field. Right. But it... It can be a little hard sometimes. I mean, being a female in the field, you just always have to prove yourself and you got to make sure that when you do something, you do it with conviction. Um, it it can be challenging, but I'm up for the challenge. So I'm willing to prove anybody wrong that I can. 
That is for sure. <laughs> right, right. I remember first getting in and um, I, I don't know how to phrase it well, but I was, I felt like I was patiently waiting my turn to get to do something. And I noticed the result was I didn't get to do the thing. <laughs> and I saw another woman in the field and she always somehow managed to get to do the thing. And I watched her. I'm like, how is she doing that? And I even went to ask her, I'm like, how do you get the chance to do the thing? How do you get in there to be able to actually lay the brick and learn how? She's like, oh, I just showed myself in there. <laughs> She's like, I just had to go in and do it. Otherwise, they're not going to let me. And exactly to your point, she just yes. went in with the conviction and she didn't let anybody tell her or try and elbow her out. And um, it was very helpful to see that. And I wonder if the two women who came in too saw you doing that, um, you know, do you feel like you were able to give them a good example and help them through some of the issues that maybe you experienced too? I would like to think so. Um, I know coming in, I initially was very intimidated um, myself coming in to an yeah. all-male field and, you know, it's it's nothing personal, but men are definitely going to sometimes assume that you're going to need their assistance with something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, I take it as, you know, they're just trying to be a gentleman. It's nothing wrong, but you have to be assertive and being like, I can do this. I can do it myself. I don't need the help. And if you do need the help, ask for it. But right. Um, that it was very intimidating starting out. And I had to, like you said, I had to learn to just push myself into that situation. And again, I, was beyond lucky to have a supervisor that I did. And I was very lucky to have coworkers who were part of the program that didn't treat me differently or didn't act like that. Right. Um, so when these new groups of females came in, I, I wanted to feel like I helped take them under my wing, I guess, a little bit. I, I hope that I had maybe showed them how I approached everything and hopefully they took it as that's how we're going to do it. Um, I definitely did see their confidence grow through the program, which was amazing and have that conviction of I'm going to do this and I'm going right. to succeed, which is amazing to see in anybody. But yeah. <laughs> it was great to know that like it maybe maybe I helped maybe. <laughs> right. Right. You saying that a big smile went across my face. I love hearing about that. And just, I, I think it's underestimated the satisfaction that comes with working with your hands. And I feel like because women aren't represented in this field, we don't get that chance so often. But I know so many women that just love being able to make something and make that physical change in something and build a wall. It's so satisfying. People, no matter who you are, it's, if you're interested in it, you're going to seek it out and you're going to try to do it. And it is so satisfying to know when you've completed a project, you're like, I helped build that whole thing. or I helped, you know, do this or that. And it's, it, gives you this sense of accomplishment that I I can't compare to anything. I, I love being able to do something with my hands like that. I love being right. able to complete a task and see the result physically. Right, right. A hundred percent that. <laughs> I think I've said that verbatim before. <laughs> it's, yeah, seeing the physical changes, it's so great. It's so great. So maybe uh, one thing that both women and men can do in the trades um, women just need to be assertive and say, I don't need your help on this or let me do this first. And then I'll ask you for help. And maybe men can always just 
ask if we need help. <laughs> that might yeah. be a simple, simple, small change to start working towards. And I don't think anybody loves unsolicited advice. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, and it's hard because a lot of people also don't like asking for help. Um, yes. That's, that's an aspect of it too, is you have to be willing to accept and that was something that right. I uh, remember talking with my coworkers about. And I was, I remember sitting one day and I was trying to do something. And I go, one of them tried to ask for help. And I was like, I'm just going to make it clear now. I was like, I'm not being rude, but I just want everyone to know I will try to get something done. And don't like, don't help me unless I ask for it because I want to, like, I want to push myself too. I want to see if I can complete the same task you can. Right. So, right. and that, that changed everything. They, I mean, again, they were trying to just be nice with me and right. they wanted to help where possible. And, but I did make, it makes a difference too. When you're like, let me fail before I ask for help. Because if, right. like we said earlier, you're not going to learn unless you fail. So right. maybe you learn where your strengths are. Maybe you learn where your pushing point is and where you do need help. Um, but setting that boundary to begin with and being able to have that conversation with coworkers, I think is really great too. being able to just have that openness of like, dude, let me, let me drop this. <laughs> let me see if I can actually pick it up and let, let's see if I can actually, you know, use this hot wax properly and everything. So. Right. I love that framework too, that you also have to be comfortable asking for help and knowing that it is okay to ask and articulating. You will ask <laughs> if you yes. need that. Yeah. Cause you're right. A lot of people don't like asking for help and it's not, um, it's not the most natural thing for a lot of people. So it is an important aspect of all of that and the controlled failure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, do you have any favorite trades or preservation books or shows that you like to read or that got you into this? Um, I will give credit to Mike Rowe with his Dirty Jobs show that I would watch growing up and that highlighted trades to begin with. Right. Um, I was not really aware of you know, you know, like I said, you know about like welding and construction. You don't really think of trades and the diversity that it holds. And I think that that kind of opened my eyes to begin with. And then now he has a podcast where he talks to people instead of um, doing the jobs with them, just talking to them about the difficulties of the jobs. And he's actually been to national parks and worked with uh, maintenance crews and preservation crews. So I think just him highlighting trades in general and highlighting the importance of them and the diversity of them has been awesome. Right. Um, definitely an eye opener for me and I'm sure many other people. Did he go to your park? Did you get to meet him? No, I wish I'm still crossing my fingers eventually, yeah. but my supervisor, uh, at hit one of his old parks. His wife got to meet him when he came one time to their park. So I was like, right. I know he goes to parks. <laughs> right. Okay. So what we're going to do is tag him in this. <laughs> Try and get him down there <laughs> to go highlight the work you're doing at Chickamauga. <laughs> Please, I would love the extra hands. All right. <laughs> um, and yeah, do you have anything that you want to plug? Do you have a website or any type of social media or do you want to promote somebody's that's trades related or otherwise? I guess highlight trades with Pita and you'll see, look those up. But I don't really have any, um, I'm not really big on social media. I, I kind of keep everything a little bit more private. Right. Right. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of trades people are that way. So how do you find out about different trades opportunities? Do you just go straight to websites or is it through word of mouth? Um, a lot of it 
I honestly is through word of mouth. So that's been another great part about TTAP was mm-hmm. um, you get to make really good connections with people, not only in the park service, but then also different aspects of the park service. So um, invasive species and bat monitoring. So, I mean, it kind of opens up your ability to work with people from different parts and, you know, get to learn like, oh, you know, a guy through the forest service or, oh, you know, somebody through Bureau of Land Management. Right. Um, different aspects, not just the park service, but different aspects that your PLC can also help you get a job through because it's for any government um, job. It's not just for park service, which is wonderful too. Right, right. Yeah, there's um, a a big but small network. (laughs) It's if you know one person, you probably know everybody, but yes, like Kevin figure out how to meet everybody. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. That, that and staying on USA jobs. If you stay on USA mm. jobs, you'll you'll figure out, you know, oh, is that park hiring? And then you can once you make those first connections, you can figure out how to how to get connected. Yes, very much. And you can Google USA jobs or just go direct. It's usajobs.gov and that hosts all the government. Uh, jobs that are out for hire, essentially. We've been talking about it throughout the podcast and didn't specify that it's a URL. (laughs) Um, And Abby, the last question that we always ask the guests is, what is your favorite historic place or site? So my favorite historic site is Sapelo Island. You know where that is? (gasps) Yes. (laughs) You do? (laughs) Yes, I'm actually Georgia-based. Oh, wow. Okay. Not many people tend to know about it. So that's... That's awesome. Um, That's actually where I did my first field school. (gasps) That's so fantastic. Tell us about it. So while I was still in school and um, in the archaeology program, we had to do, well, we didn't have to, but we got to do field schools. And so you go for a month to historic sites to help um, dig up archaeological remains, not human remains, but artifacts. That's what I mean by remains. And um, we did it as a project for working with like in hand with NPS and government entities while also trying to shed light on the Geechee Gola culture. So I ended up, I became one of my favorite historic places. When I first went, I was, you know, I'm in school and I was kind of frustrated. I had to spend a month away from my friends for the summer, but the community there and the history of that place is amazing. Um, I don't think it gets nearly enough credit and it was wonderful to work there and to get to know the people and actually know that when we were doing our work there, we were helped giving light to a culture and a population that has for a long time been silenced in a long time has not had the opportunity to share their own history. Right. So it was a, and it's beautiful. It right off the coast of Georgia in the South. Um, it's close to Savannah and it's a remote little Island. You can't stay there. We only did because we got um, permission through our work. Right. But if you ever get the chance to visit there, and if not, St. Simon's is really close by next to it, and that's another cool site. But okay. Sapelo has an amazing history that I think deserves more to it than, you know, just being looked over. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a place I've been meaning to go and I haven't, and I've heard so many cool things about, and yeah, it's a barrier Island and it's the Gola Geechee community that lives there. And they're the only ones allowed to still live out there. Right. And there's no bridges. You have to take a ferry. And like you said, you have to leave at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, we, we had to stay in government housing while we were there. So we stayed on the Island, but the ferry 
only does, I think like three trips a day. Right. And on, except for on Sundays, because they still um, have church services on the Island for the Gijikola population, because it has one of the first um, Baptist African-American churches. in the state. Oh, wow. So, they still hold service and they hold traditional, as far as I'm aware, they hold the traditional kind of service that they held then. And it's this beautiful little church they have on the island. So they have more ferry rides on Sundays. So the population and the descendants of that population can continue to go to church where their ancestors went to church. That's awesome. It's, it was so great to work there and to help, like I said, give history to where history has been silenced and it was so great to work with the people and they were so appreciative and they got to learn things about their own culture that they had heard through folklore. They're like, Oh my goodness. Like we've always heard about this, but we didn't know if it was true and being able to kind of give them that. proof. Right. The tangible history to the oral history. Yes, it was. So I highly recommend if you get a chance to go down there and visit, it is a beautiful place. Yeah. It's on the list. (laughs) It's on the list. And well, Abby, thank you so much for joining us today for this Preserve Cast um, Second Ever Trades Takeover. We're very appreciative for you to come and talk about TTAP and your experiences with training. And just, yes, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's honestly been an honor to be able to represent, you know, something I've spent so much time in and have enjoyed so much. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and any listeners who are interested for the 2022 program year, we're actively recruiting for these TTAP positions at MPS sites across the country. If you want to learn more or even apply, you can visit historictrades.org, one word. You can email us at info at historic trades, or you can also follow us at historic trades on Instagram. Um, and yeah, Abby, thank you so much. We will talk again soon. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.